topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Fearless, Fabulous You. I am your host, Melanie Young, and I'm so happy to have you join me today. Uh, As you know, uh, my show is about inspiring women and issues on health and nutrition to make all of us live healthier lives. And we're going to address this in full today with four inspiring women, two on each of my show segments. First of all, I want to thank everybody who inquired about my health. As you know, I was battling. I just came back from Florida and had Dr. Jim Roach on the show to talk about how to deal with the flu. And I didn't follow his rules or mine and did too much and had a little relapse and missed my show Wednesday. But thank you, everybody. A lot of people wrote in, I'm doing better. So I want to talk about an issue. I I have an elderly mother. Fortunately, she's healthy. She's persnickety, and she doesn't like to cook, but she's healthy. She's 81. (laughs) But I want to tell you that um, it's really shocking. According to a 1993 study by the Urban Institute, nearly 5 million elderly Americans aged 60 and over experience, quote, food insecurity, which I've addressed in other shows, which means not getting enough to eat. In fact, 55% of seniors admitted to hospitals are suffering from malnutrition. Now, that's just crazy. I mean, how could that be in our rich, wonderful nation? And to bring it close to home, I'm, you know, part of the New York, greater New York City area. There's 1.5 million elderly, many of whom are probably, as one of my two guests coming on will say, is one of your invisible neighbors who may not be getting enough to eat while you may be going out dining and having a great time. Well, We are going to speak to two women who really are standard bearers for how we can help nourish and take care of our nation's elderly by what they're doing in New York City. We have on today in our first segment, Gail Green, who is a co-founder of City Meals on Wheels, and Beth Shapiro, the executive director of City Meals on Wheels. City Meals on Wheels is a not-for-profit which raises private funds to ensure that no homebound elderly New Yorker will ever go a day without food our human company, and they have delivered over 2 million nutritious meals to more than 18,000 frail-aged citizens in New York, every borough of New York City. Uh, this is a huge effort, and your donations go to deliver meals, but there are other ways to get involved with City Meals on Wheels other than writing checks. There's volunteerism, which we're going to talk about. First, I'm going to introduce Gail. Gail, for many people know Gail, is the insatiable critic. She's been a renowned restaurant critic long time at New York Magazine and now has her own, writes about um, restaurants and food on her blog, Insatiable Critic, and I hope I got that right, Gail, and um, she is author of several best-selling books, including my favorite, Delicious Sex, because I used to love to go around asking all the books sellers in New York and elsewhere if they carry and had delicious sex, just to see what they'd say. But her legacy, I think, is going to be this amazing organization, which I wholeheartedly support, called City Mills and Wheels. I've known Beth Shapiro since she was the director of special events 
at City Mills and Wills. And since she's been executive director since September 2011, she has seen the organization increase 52% in volunteer participation and launch many new initiatives, which we're going to talk about, and worked really hard through some of what I think are some of the toughest times we experienced, including Hurricane Sandy and terrible heat waves that have just really helped with the heat waves and the cold winter. Um, So it's a year-round effort. So I want to say welcome to Gail and welcome to Beth. Well, Melanie, it's it's great to have this chance to talk about how we first discovered the desperate straits of many elderly New Yorkers and how uh, we organized and excited uh, our own neighbors into uh, trying to help to re- and to reach the point where we're actually going to be delivering 2.2 million meals just this year. Awesome, awesome. So, Gail, I want to talk about that. You, you know, how did you come upon this. I mean, here you are, your, your life was a banquet, Auntie Mame, and then you realize that there were people who, were, who, who, who you were living probably around you who were not getting enough to eat. So tell us a little bit how you discovered this and how you got started, and then we'll talk about, you know, with Beth, I'm talking about where you are today. Uh, I read an article in the New York Times one Sunday morning, City Scrimps to Feed the Aged. And uh, I had just been out the night before and spent $200 on a perfectly ordinary meal. And it occurred to me that it was outrageous that these particular people, there were 340 people, elderly people, did not have uh, weekend or holiday meals, but were getting one meal a day, five days a week, and the city couldn't afford to deliver on weekends or holidays. So I called James Beard, and I said, Jim, you know, let's do something, and he, let's fill Christmas baskets. Uh, you know, what did I know? I, and he said, well, what about the weekend meals? And I said, oh, we'll do that too. So we called all our friends over the weekend and raised $35,000 on the telephone, mostly calling food people mm-hmm. and professionals and, and people who are members of gastronomic societies and PR people and advertising. And we raised this money, and it went to deliver 6,000 Christmas meals to people who would not have had any. And we were so moved by that experience that we, um, that we decided to organize and go on from there and grew into ultimately uh, 30, what is it, 34 years now? Yeah, 34 years. City meals on Wheels. And, um, you know, I, I want to just say for anyone listening who may not know who James Beard was, he was a renowned cookbook author and chef, well, really a cook, cooking teacher, and he uh, was prolific and was considered the dean of American cooking, just to clarify who James Beard was to some of our listeners. Uh, and I also want to say that the food industry is among some of the most generous in the world. Well, uh, I thought people in the food world would be especially unhappy to think that their neighbors, invisible neighbors who could no longer get out of their homes to shop or cook, had not, did not have enough to eat. I, I thought they would be especially moved, and, uh, they, and that's true. They responded, and they continued to be among our activist uh, supporters, and cont- some people have been giving and doing events for us for almost 30 years. Well, exactly, and some really well-known names in the business. And what's really great, you have a very uh, great board of directors in the city of New York, and so 100% of public donations go to the preparation delivery mills. I think that's really important because you always going to want to know where does the money go. 
So let's talk about where the money goes and how City Meals and Wheels helps. And I want to I want to stage it so that people listening outside of New York can think, hey, we could do something like this in our community. We should do something. So let's talk about that. Sure. Um, I'll take that. So the city here in New York funds meals Monday through Friday. And as Gail said, she was mobilized to make sure these frail older people had meals every day of the year because what are they going to do on the weekends otherwise? And there are meal delivery programs across this country. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's the ability that Gail started that we raise private money in, in the realm of, for us, $20 million a year um, to provide weekend, holiday, and emergency meals. Mm-hmm. In our lifetime, Gail's lifetime of, with City Meals, last December we delivered our 50 millionth meal. <coughs> so in addition to these weekends, we recognize that meal centers may be closed on holidays, Labor Day, Memorial Day, and we provide shelf-stable food. To, to help at those times, but here in New York, also to get ready for winter, we do a box of 20 pounds of food to make sure there's food on the cupboards when the streets are icy, and yeah. even an older person who might be able to make it out to the corner market for a loaf of bread or milk on a nice day is really becomes a prisoner in their home in the harsh weather. So we need to make sure all of that is um, in place for them. But I I would like to talk about the idea that every dollar the public gives goes only for meals because that's a kind of a rash thing to say, and I hear other charities saying a similar thing. But that was the point I made to the commissioner for the Department for the Aging when I gave her that money we raised over the phone. I said to her, I don't want a dime to come out for a phone call or a stamp which in those, that's how much it was in those days. And she said, no, that's not a problem. We have our own administrative funds, and your money will go only for meals. And I think that that is one of the things that is most appealing about City Meals when people first heard about it. They realized that a dollar would go to buy, prepare, and deliver a meal. And we raise our administrative funds separately through foundations and grants and some money that we receive from the city and from our board members. And that guarantees that every dollar we raise from the public will only go for meals. And for uh, and recently we have been uh, training volunteers and the numbers of volunteers who actually either go out on a weekly basis or make a phone call on a weekly basis or deliver on the weekends has grown and grown and Companies send out volunteers, and in emergencies, when we are delivering meals and the city is closed down and our emergency packages are being delivered, we can round up uh, hundreds of emergency helpers to um, walk up the stairs in the dark and hand people um, a meal and a bottle of water, mm-hmm. as we did during uh, the the blackouts and during Sandy. And I'm so proud of how we've grown and how people have recognized uh, what it is and what it means to to be involved with the elderly. Because it's easy to think about children. When you help Mm -hmm. a child, you help the future. With the elderly, it's only about 
what we really, what we owe them in a sense of those people created New York City. And now there, many of them are alone and unable to get out of their homes by themselves. And I want, and my thought was that I would, I would want very much to be able to continue to feed um, the growing ranks of the homebound. I think that uh, Beth has more on the statistics of how many, uh, what, what their, uh, their income level is and how many of them are um, quite disabled and really need our help. What would you say, Beth, about the... Yep, I, I will say that over half of them live alone. Forty mm-hmm. percent say they rarely or never leave their homes, and nearly ten percent have nobody to talk to on any given day. So it's really it's like companionship as much as nourishment. I mean, these are people who are isolated. They're completely isolated. The person you know coming to the door, even a couple of minutes of handing them their meal, a small conversation, checking to make sure they're okay, that, you know, they don't need a light bulb change, that nothing with their health has changed. We've trained our volunteers and staff delivers to recognize early signs of Alzheimer's and dementia, to recognize elder abuse, not to handle it, but to report back, because we're their connection to the outside world. You know, Almost all are using some sort of assistive device for walking, a cane, a wheelchair, a walker, simply to get around their small apartments. Mm-hmm. It is vital. And as you mentioned at the, the beginning of the segment, the elderly are the fastest growing population in the country mm-hmm. as well as in this city. And one in ten older New Yorkers is struggling to find food. They're living at or below the poverty level. And they need the simple meal coming to the door and the person who's delivering it just to check and make sure they're okay. Right. Sometimes it isn't only the um, money issue. It's also the depression, the loneliness, aloneness of, uh, that makes people eat less or not eat properly, and the idea that somebody will come to the door that they will, can expect, who will greet them and say hello and hand them a package and maybe in case that they're in bed or blind, open it up and put it in front of them and, um, you know, give them a kind of a cheerful little story, and then that alone is enough to make them feel they are connected. I think that's really key to point out because um, isolation, you know, we all read that article by, in the New York Times by N.R. Kleinfeld recently about the gentleman who died alone in his apartment, just completely yeah. invisible. And I, I just thought of City Mills and Wills and thought about all the other people who are probably living like that that we don't know about. And we know them, so many of them, alone in their apartments. And, Melanie, you mentioned other ways and money, and of course mm-hmm. we need funding. We need to raise money every day of right. the year, but we do rely on our volunteers. We had over 15,000 volunteers last year, almost 70,000 hours of volunteer time, and in wow. addition to meal delivery, we really work on the social isolation impact with our volunteers. We have volunteers who write letters 
to meal recipients who call and have a phone call, you know, once or twice a week for a few minutes with the same meal recipient. And those who go out on our friendly visiting program who are paired with an, a meal recipient who has likes and, and similarities and they guarantee they'll spend an hour a week with this person, whether it's just sitting and talking or on occasion taking, occasionally taking them to a doctor's appointment, but really forming a bond that lasts a very long time and keeps this person engaged. And we a, also, you, we've also been asking them to write us letters and tell us about their lives and w- what they did in the early days of their youth in New York. And we get the most beautiful and moving letters. Uh, very, and we also have volunteers who answer the letters. And, that, and we have children who draw greeting cards for special occasions. It's... Um, and, and those letters, when we distribute them, for instance, we have a, a big lunch every year um, in November, and we invite about and about 500 people come. We pass out those letters, and I can assure you that having paid already to come to the lunch, very often people will stop and make out another check because the letters are so touching. These people, they look like your grandmother and your aunt or your school teacher. They are faces that you would know, and they're basically alone, so many of them. And now they know that we are here uh, and thinking of them, and many of them are absolutely amazed to think that strangers care. It is amazing. I have been, and just for my listeners, since I have a woman's audience, it's a, it's a women's power lunch. It really is fabulous. And I go every year. And the, le- the, the stories are amazing because uh, Gail, usually you or sometimes some notable actresses, read the letters. And, you know, it's sad that we put our senior citizens out to pasture. We treat our horses better out to pasture than some senior citizens, which is just egregious, because these are people who have lived very full lives. Many of them have amazing stories, and people just need to take the time. That one hour you're probably doodling on your Facebook, you could spend with someone that is isolated and just need someone to talk to. Well, a lot of these people are really us. Mm -hmm. You know, they are people who were school teachers and uh, dancers, Mm-hmm. Um, actresses, uh, makeup artists, people who had, had uh, very similar careers to us. Maybe they were married. Maybe they never had children. Their children they're dis- they're f- are far away uh, or have abandoned them. They are so they are they are simply New Yorkers, and in New York, especially, people are often more likely to be left alone in a mm-hmm. small room somewhere. Um, whereas in smaller towns, families are nearby. So I think that we've become the family to the 18,000 New Yorkers that we help feed. And all the New Yorkers who have joined us and who support us um, are the family of these. It makes New York more like a small town in, in every way. I always think of that, especially this time of year when we are... Mm-hmm. pressing our fundraising. Exactly. Well, I want to address that, but before we do that, I want to talk about the numbers. What does, uh, you said a, a meal costs a dollar, which is amazing because SNAP, you know, this, the food stamps is $4, uh, you know, so it's even less than SNAP. What, um, no, 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 a, a meal uh, doesn't cost a dollar. 
Oh, it doesn't. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. I must admit it's about yeah. six dollars and change to get a meal prepared and delivered to the door. Okay, so in the numbers, what is a a week of meals cost or weekend? So people who may want to support through uh, sponsoring weekend meals, or give us some examples of that. So if it's a weekend meal, you know, two weekends. If you want to do one weekend, it's it's thirteen dollars. Right. You know, it, it is it is not a lot of money. It's about eight hundred and change to support weekend holiday emergency meals for one person for a full year. That cost is less than one day in the hospital for someone. Well, it, you, or to put it into perspective, it's a cocktail in New it's York. It's 250 a day for a year yeah. of food. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. And less calories for you. It's your, it's your, it's your cocktail <laughs> at the bar or two lattes, you know, or two cold brew. I mean, I'm still blotting over the cost of a cold brew coffee in Manhattan anywhere. So it's, it's really um, a very small amount that, that goes very, very far. And, and while we did say it's not just about writing a check, it's a small amount. And I'm bringing that up because this time of the year, every charity is fundraising and my inbox is flooded. And, and, I think that's great because everybody's thinking about how to, you know, write checks so they're, you know, finding ways to utilize their money wisely at the end of the year. But I also am very big on stressing that it's not just about the holidays. That this, you know, make a bigger effort and think about the year-round effort that you can do. True, and I think a point of different, but a point of difference that Gail brought up earlier that is critical: one hundred percent of every penny that someone donates will be used for meal preparation and delivery. It's huge. It's huge. So, yeah. What do we I mean, have? Let's, uh, I, can't, I can't multiply. But a year of meals, um, how about sending 100 meals? It's, it's, you could do that for $600. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you could um, do a year of weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, choose an amount. Mm-hmm. Divide by six, because not all our meals are six fifty. Right. Some of them are uh, less when we deliver. Sometimes we will deliver a weekend meal along with a, a Sunday meal along with a Saturday meal, mm-hmm. and uh, you could. And you, sorry, we also have um, greeting cards that we sell, right. where each card pays for one meal. So we have a lot of friends who buy multiple cards. Mm-hmm. And then let their friends feel that they have delivered a meal, uh, and that gets other friends involved in city meals. And we tell their, it gives us a chance to tell our story. Exactly. I mean, there's, there are many ways, and I love the letter writing. I just think that's just fabulous because it's, sometimes it's just the communication that is is so important as much as the meal. And, you know, anyone can write letters. I mean, if people remember how to write. Well, that first year when I heard about, read about it in the paper and we raised that money, I went out with a social worker and she took me to see somebody on my block. I'm on 73rd on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And um, there, she told me there were 13 people on my block, no wow. longer really visible, who were getting meals delivered. And meeting that woman who lived in the Ansonia, the beautiful Ansonia on the top floor in the servants' quarters, um, who could not get out of bed, meeting this sprightly little adorable woman with this gray hair and a tiny ring held on with a rubber band, I will never forget that woman. I think of her often, and uh, I think of all the similar people hidden away in their apartments 
And um, I must say, I don't mind being decadent as a restaurant critic anymore and eating all those pork bellies because <laughs> I feel I feel that we have, you know, we've done this incredible job of letting people know about mm-hmm. our neighbors who need help, and they have come through, and uh, it, it's very, it's been incredibly gratifying. It really is, and I think about. It. I mean, I'm childless. Dave and I are childless. If, if if we get up there in years and one of us is gone, we're going to be alone. I mean, we could be a recipient one day. I mean, we really know you know that's the reality. So it's you know, well, we have couples that. too. No, really? we do have couples too wow. the, where both of them are ill and can barely help each other. Mm. Um, we went to visit a couple, Beth and I. Yeah, uh, he he was uh, jolly and not quite there. And she was lying on a sofa, totally collapsed, barely able to breathe. Wow. And they were artists, and they lived in West Bath. And they had both been—they were both in museums, and they oh had been God. quite successful in their careers. And now they were just um, pretty much unable to—well, certainly unable to go out and shop. And that oh. simple little meal that would be delivered, two meals to their home uh, every day help them get through uh, the period of, uh, well, of their inability to really take care of themselves now. Wow, that's that's amazing. And, and so I just, you know, I didn't even think about, you know, couples, but it's true. I mean, it's, uh, both may be ill. And, you know, I want to, before we wrap, I want to do two things. First of all, City Meals is one of the largest Meals and Wheels programs in America. If you are not in New York and you want to get involved and learn about local programs, you can go to www.mealsonwheelsamerica.org. I think that's important because there are organizations around the country that work with departments of aging to see what you can do in your community. Uh, Meals and Wheels um, supports more than 5,000 community-based senior nutrition programs across the country. For anyone interested in City Meals on Wheels in New York, what is the website and uh, phone number for more information about donating time or money or buying cards? citymeals.org, C-I-T-Y-M-E-A-L-S dot O-R-G, or people could call us at 212-687-1234. Absolutely. I think this is so important, and I just really want to stress that, you know, everybody gets like really, you know, touchy-feely and wants to go feed people over the holidays, which is great, I'm happy about that. But think about when you make a charitable commitment, think about what you can do on an ongoing basis. I preach this whether it's breast cancer awareness or hunger or supporting the elderly. Make a commitment. You'll, you will give more and you will get more if you think bigger than just Thanksgiving, right? Absolutely. Oh, I, yeah, I think so. People are incredibly rewarded by the amount, their exposure to these people and to the idea that they have helped. Absolutely. You can also look at our website for some of the stories about mm-hmm. these older people and really understand and, and feel who they are and, as Gail said, how they built this city. Absolutely. And the stories, I have spent some time on the website, and the stories are amazing. And I encourage everybody to, they're, they're beautifully done with photographs, citymealsandwheels.org. You will, it, it puts a face on your neighbors who may be lacking while you're out enjoying. They may be home. They may isolate and be hungry. And we have to take care. It's community. And New York's a big community, but um, it's, it's got a community with a heart. And I want to thank you, Gail, for really 
you know, taking the initiative with the late James Spirit to make this happen and your dedication for 34 years. And Beth, you've done an amazing job, um, you know, stepping in as uh, after filling the shoes of a very large executive director, stepping in and, and, and building initiatives like Chefs Deliver, which takes some of the city's best chefs out of their kitchen, delivers specially prepared meals and increasing volunteerships. If everybody should try to go out and talk to City Mills about learning about how to volunteer and experience delivering a meal, I think that would be, that would just put a face on all of this. I always think how Jim would smile Mm -hmm. if he could see how amazingly we have grown Mm -hmm. and how we're still here doing it. And you will continue to be here long, 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 thank goodness. So I, uh, we have to wrap. I want to thank you both for taking the time. Again, we've been talking with Gail Green, who is the founder and chair of City Mills on Wheels, and Beth Shapiro, who is executive director. Again, the website is www.citymills.org, and you have been listening to Fearless Fabulous You. Come on, check it out, and you know, give. The greatest thing I did in my life was learn to focus on giving and not getting. So think about that. Thank you. We're going to take a break. Fabulous you. I am your host, Melanie Young. Hey, are you following me on Facebook? Fearless Fabulous Melanie is my page, and I have fabisms every day on how to live life on your terms. And Twitter, Mighty Melanie, and Instagram, Fabulous Melanie. And as you know, I have two books. They're great gifts. Getting things off my chest. A Survivor's Guide to Staying Fearless and Fabulous in the Face of Breast Cancer. And Fearless Fabulous You. Lessons on Living Life on Your Terms, available nationwide or on my website, melanion.com. So we were talking with Gail Green, the great, I love that woman, Gail Green. We've had some amazing meals together, but we talked to Gail Green and Beth Shapiro of City Meals and Wills about supporting our nation's elderly and our city's elderly because too many elderly are suffering from malnutrition, and that is simply wrong. We have to respect our senior citizens. So we're going to switch gears, and this, this next topic intrigues me, particularly since I've been battling fluida, as we all know, and all sorts of things, and I get worried. Um, I learned about this through my friend Valerie Smallbone, who was at a SHARE event, uh, a cancer support event. She said, I need you to think about this. And she told me the story of, uh, I didn't get a pronunciation last name, Wendy Barukowitz, I hope I did it right, who would age, th- a healthy woman, mom of two with a newborn, okay, healthy, active, like many of us. And then she got these like symptoms that were just completely debilitating, which I'll let her talk about. And at age 39, um, had to go to doctors, find out what's going on. And, you know, was told she was stressed, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she, she came up, 
she was diagnosed with a uh, a condition. Uh, I just learned the name. Dysautonomia, dysautonomia, I hope I got that right, a family of disorders that impacts the central nervous system, which affects, get this, over 70 million people worldwide, and a number of women. And it can be, I dug a little more in this website called Dysautonomia International, founded by my second guest on this dual segment, Lauren Stiles, a lawyer who also was diagnosed. In both cases, Wendy and Lauren were misdiagnosed and told they had other things or stress. They'll talk about that. But they had a condition, and, 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 and dysautonomia has actually got a number of conditions under it, and it can be a secondary, syndrome, secondary symptom. A condition for other medical issues such as diabetes, multiple sclerosis, celiac, Sjogren's syndrome, a good friend of mine has that, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and Parkinson's. According to Dysautonomia International, um, you know, uh, one out of three a million Americans, especially young women who may seem healthy on the outside, have the condition that Wendy's going to you know, talk about that she was diagnosed with. So first I want to say this is important for anyone who's wondering, you know, may have conditions. Obviously, with everything, if you have any issues going on, seek your, you know, talk to your medical practitioner and be armed with questions. But this is the show to inform and enlighten. So I want to, uh, again, welcome Wendy Barukowitz and Lauren Stiles to Fearless Fabulous You. Welcome, ladies. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you for having us. It is uh, my pleasure. This is uh, interesting. You know, I'm, I, I, I embrace this show with curiosity. It's about empowering, taking charge of your health and well-being always. And so, Wendy, let's start with you. You were 39. You're a mom. You've got a newborn. What happened? So I was in my last trimester last week of my pregnancy. I was put on precautionary bed rest for about five months of the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I knew something was off during the pregnancy. I felt like something wasn't right. About a week before I was about to deliver, I went to stand up and move around. I was given the, you know, the go-ahead to go ahead and stand up. And I noticed that my heart rate was just pounding out of my chest. My resting heart rate just from laying down to sitting to standing would exceed 150, 160 beats per minute. That was just my resting heart rate. So I knew immediately something was wrong. So fast forward a week, I, you know, delivered my baby um, in the hospital and my resting heart rate shoots up to 180. And then all of a sudden, within a couple of days, I started to feel these other debilitating symptoms like this high heart rate tachycardia, vertigo, lightheadedness, debilitating fatigue, fainting and almost pre-fainting, nausea, gastrointestinal issues, vomiting, migraines, tremors. I mean, the list goes on and on. Literally, it felt like my body was taken over (laughs) by something other than myself. So I kept telling the doctors um, something's not right. I knew something was wrong with my body. Um, I Googled my symptoms and POTS came up, uh, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, which is a form of dysautonomia. So, you know, none of the doctors knew what POTS was, and I actually ended up explaining it to them. I kept saying, I know I have POTS. They said, no, you don't. You just had a baby. You're postpartum. Uh, you have anxiety, you're depressed, here's some anti-anxiety medication, here's some antidepressants. Um, and I just kept getting pushed through the medical community and kept doling out you know, anti-anxiety and depression medication. So finally, uh, three months later, by the way, which is an extremely quick diagnosis, Lauren can tell you, <laughs> um, a very quick diagnosis. I was finally diagnosed with POTS. 
it takes an average of five and a half to six years for a patient with POTS to become diagnosed. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. That's There's, crazy. There are some individuals who've gone, mis, uh, you know, undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for up to 30 years, and it's really just due to a lack of awareness within the medical profession. Once you know what to look for for POTS, it's actually fairly um, easy to start recognizing it. You know, it's sort of like when you buy a new car and you you think you're the only one that has that car, but then you start noticing it on the road all the time and you're like, oh, a lot of people have this car, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of uh, how we think of POTS. Once you know what to look for, you see it all the time. Well, I want to, you know, I want to get into that. First of all, I, I want to just, Lauren, tell me how it, what, how, how did this come to you? Let's just first get well, your high um, birth a, a very similar story to Wendy. I was 31. I was a busy uh, working attorney in, uh, in eastern Long Island, and I was snowboarding up in Vermont for Christmas break, and I had a really bad concussion. And the first day of the concussion, I, I knew I whacked my head pretty hard. It didn't feel so good, so I just kind of hung out in the base lodge and had some hot chocolate and relaxed. Um, the second day, I thought I was feeling better, so I tried to go cross-country skiing. So, I, you know, I knew it was bad to hit your head again. Um, so cross-country skiing was my resting version of a winter vacation. <laughs> and then uh, the, the, by the third, actually like the end of the second day, I started having all of these horrific symptoms just all at once. Like Wendy said, um, lightheadedness, uh, vomiting, horrible GI symptoms. Um, shaking, my one pupil was really dilated, the other one was really small, I was very sensitive to noises and light and just like this wave of kind of frightening symptoms and you didn't know what was going on. You know, I, I assumed it was the concussion and I ended up in an emergency room. Uh, up, um, we started driving home from Vermont to New York and I ended up in the emergency room and I said to the doctor, oh, I had this concussion, I was kind of worried, maybe I needed an MRI or something. And the very, very first thing he told me is, oh, you must be hungover. I said, what? I'm 31. I don't do silly stuff like that anymore. <laughs> and then he said, well, if you're not hungover, you must just be having a panic attack. And I said, well, I was kind of relaxed on vacation, hanging out in the hot tub all week. I, I've never had a panic attack before. So that started a two-year journey of misdiagnosis, um, very often being told um, things like, oh, you're just doing this because you're 31 and don't have babies yet and you're trying to get attention from your oh husband. Or, you know, oh, you're just too stressed as a lawyer, take some time off or have some red wine with dinner, you know, kind of just poo-pooing the whole idea that I actually had a real illness. Um, so two years into it, I ended up uh, at Cleveland Clinic after bouncing around mm -hmm. to all of New York's big hospitals and not getting any answers. And at Cleveland Clinic, we found out that I had POTS, but I actually had it due to Sjogren's syndrome, mm -hmm. which is the autoimmune disease you mentioned your friend had earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and Sjogren's is the second most common cause of autonomic nerve damage right after diabetes. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that some people can end up with um, POTS because POTS patients um, tend to have, uh, about half of them have autonomic nerve damage. So okay. anyways... My long story is, you know, kind of the same as, as um, Wendy's and, and so many other POTS patients. If it was just me and Wendy that had this kind of awful, you know, getting this diagnosed thing, it probably wouldn't be such a big deal. But it's literally almost everyone we've ever met with POTS goes through that misdiagnosis. Wendy was lucky. It was only three months. But 
um, the average, as she said, is, is five to six years. So I have to ask you each, what was the test that actually correctly diagnosed it after all the mixed diagnoses? Yours longer, Laura, than Wendy's, but what was it that finally nailed it? And then, you, and then next point is, what are you doing about, each of you doing about it? Or what can you do about it? So the, the criteria, Lauren, I'll start the first half and you can start the second half if mm-hmm. you want. Okay. The, the first part of it is a diagnostic test. Actually, you could actually do this at home where you take your resting heart rate, you lay down, um, you sit up, you stand up, and you take your resting heart rate. If your heart rate exceeds 30 beats or more per minute upon standing for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. that sets the criteria for POTS. But the diagnostic test at the doctor's would be um, a tilt table test. So, Lauren, if you want to go ahead and pick it up from there regarding tilt table tests. Sure. A, a tilt table test is um, and they lay you down on a table and they, they put these straps in your chest so that if you faint, you don't injure yourself. And they slowly they tilt the test um, the table upright so that you're not using your leg muscles, but you are upright. And they're looking to see how much your heart rate and blood pressure change over time okay. and when you change position. And as Wendy noted, if, if your heart rate increases 30 beats per minute or more, so in other words, if it goes from 70 to 140, there is a good chance you might have POTS. Um, but it's not that simple. You also have to have a couple other criteria that the doctors will look for. But that's the test, the tilt table test. Um, POTS patients also have sometimes um, something called a QSART test, which looks at your sweat gland nerves in your legs your sweat glands are actually um, controlled by your autonomic nerves. And so 50% of POTS patients have damage to their nerves in their legs. And so the doctors look for that as one of the possible um, findings in POTS. But it's not part of the diagnostic criteria. I want to, I want to clarify something. So neuropathy, autom- autonomic nerve, neuro- nerve damage and autoimmune, how are they different? Okay, so... Uh, autonomic, your, your body has different types of nerves, and the, mm-hmm. the three most common that people know about are the motor nerves that control mm-hmm. your muscles, your mm-hmm. sensory nerves that control like pain and temperature control, uh, t- you know, temperature sensation, mm-hmm. and then your autonomic nerves control everything else in your body that you don't consciously think about. So your digestion, your kidney function, your blood pressure, your heart rate, uh, excretion, you know, all of these wonderful things that your body does for you, that's controlled by your autonomic nervous system. And when you have damage to your autonomic nervous system of any sort uh, that's creating a, you know, a health problem, you have a form of dysautonomia. There's a lot of different things that can damage autonomic nerves. Mm -hmm. So that means there's a lot of different things that can cause dysautonomia. Um, Autoimmune disease is, um, it may or may not involve the nerves, and autoimmunity is when your own immune system attacks okay. one or more parts of your body, Got whether it. it's your thyroid or your, mm-hmm. uh, your nerves or whatever. Okay, that's a great explanation. Like, right, Thank like you, because I was, I was confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the celiac well, is autoimmune? Give, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I was just going to give some, in addition to the Lauren, okay. thing, some under, underlying causes of dysautonomia could be celiac, which is autoimmune, Crohn's disease, mm-hmm. autoimmune, ulcerative colitis, also mm-hmm. autoimmune. Um, so those are just some examples. Like, for instance, for me, I have celiac, so I have an autoimmune um, disease as well as, mm-hmm. you know, as POTS. Is that, and, is that usually how it happens, that you have one thing and the other is affected? Well, not everyone with, um, not everyone with dysautonomia has an autoimmune problem. I mean, it seems to be <coughs> one of the more common things that causes it, but 
Some people have um, genetic defects, you know, that right. uh, regulate the way their bodies repair nerves, and over time they can get nerve damage. Some people have uh, infectious diseases that can cause uh, dysautonomia. So there are a lot of different things. Like anything that can damage a nerve could end up causing dysautonomia. That's interesting. I asked that. Yeah, I'm yeah. curious because a lot of cancer patients have neuropathy and then there's yeah. all these strange symptoms that happen later because I'm doing a mm-hmm. book on the long-term impact and I'm starting to wonder if that's a related. I have to ask, uh, we have a few more minutes so that we have to wrap. I have to ask two questions. Um, first, what lifestyle changes did each of you or should you make if you're diagnosed? So I'm sure we both have done the same. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but number one is exercise. So okay. when I went to a premier specialist at the uh, mm-hmm. University of Toledo, Dr. Blair Grubb, uh, the number one lifestyle change that people with POTS have should do is exercise. But that mm-hmm. is not the case for all POTS patients. Not all mm-hmm. POTS patients can exercise. They might mm-hmm. have uh, exercise intolerance. So exercise is key. Um, mm-hmm. The goal for someone who is initially diagnosed is to do three days a week of exercise. Me personally, and I think Lauren as well, we try to go every day and do exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that we've changed is our diet. Mm-hmm. So everything clean, no processed foods. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people with POTS can have gastrointestinal problems. So eating mm-hmm. clean food and small meals, frequent small meals uh, can also help ameliorate any of the symptoms of POTS. Well, you know, those are points and, 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 and that everybody should be doing. And, and any other mm-hmm. lifestyle changes? Um, well, one of the things we all are encouraged to do by our doctors is um, since POTS patients have low blood volume, which is hmm. part of their illness, mm-hmm. um, they're told to drink really large quantities of hydrating fluids like water or mm-hmm. uh, Gatorade or whatnot. And so we drink about three liter, two to three liters a day of fluids, and many patients are instructed by their doctors to um, take salt. And everyone else has doctors telling them, reduce your salt, right? Well, Right. People with dysautonomia are often told to have um, up to 10,000 milligrams of salt a day or more, wow. which is really hard to get when you're eating healthy. So you end right. up putting salt on your watermelon and salt That's on your cantaloupe. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so salt, also making sure you get good sleep. You know, these mm-hmm. are kind of um, lifestyle things that help with almost any chronic illness. Right. Um, and and POTS, so POTS is not unique to that. Um, there are a lot of medications used to treat POTS, too, Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people have different responses to them. It's, there's no, like, universally effective uh, medication that is used for POTS, unfortunately. So what kind of doctor do you go to, to if you think you may have symptoms? What kind of doctor do you seek out? So you either go to a cardiologist or mm-hmm. a neurologist, but you want to be sure that these doctors are very well-reversed and have a mm-hmm. very um, keen understanding of what POTS and dysautonomia is. So you have to ask. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I can't tell you how many cardiologists I saw. Lauren, I don't know if you have the same experience, but yes. how many cardiologists and neurologists I saw um, with also these top-tier doctors at New York hospitals who told me I didn't have POTS, that only teenage girls mm-hmm. get POTS, you know, not 39-year-old pregnant postpartum women, which is simply not true. Well, I have to ask this other question. Why do so many young women get diagnosed with it? You know, it's, uh, Lauren can add to this as well, but, you know, this is why we need so much research uh, mm-hmm. to figure, figure this piece out. Um, some theories are because of the hormonal surges mm-hmm. um, at, their, at their pubescent years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an 85%, 85, 85 um, percent, um, 
ratio between male and female. So it's a five-to-one ratio between male and female. Females wow. are more likely. Some believe that it's the testosterone in the in hormones in the males that protect them from, you know, getting more autoimmune disorders and potentially, you know, diagnose of, you know, mm-hmm. getting POTS or just form of dysautonomia. Lauren, you can feel free to add to that as well. Yeah, um, I think that that's a that's a really important question that there is no clear scientific answer to yet. And mm-hmm. Dysautonomia International is funding that kind of research. We want that an- those answers. And um, there have there have been some studies showing that women with POTS have very um, lots of ex- estrogen dependent health problems like polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a hormonal component. Um, male patients that get it um, tend to have a, a slightly better um, chance of recovering or, or improving over time than the women do. So there might be a benefit to having testosterone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really it's really not well understood yet. And male and female uh, cardiovascular physiology is somewhat different. So right. m- women might actually be more prone to this for other reasons besides hormones. Well, it's, um, so, it's yeah. really fascinating. I, I, you know, Lauren, you've um, helped start D- Dysautonomia International, and I'm going to spell that, D-Y-S-A-U-T-O-N is <laughs> in Nancy, O-M is in Melanie, I-A, international.org, correct? Or is yes, it dot com? Yes. Yeah. It's a not-for-profit um, to help fund research, and it, it's a very helpful website. Again, if you're experiencing symptoms, you know, again, they could be other things. It's important to go to the right doctor, write down your symptoms, document how frequently they are, and then go armed with questions. You both kind of found everything on Google, but I always say, you know, don't just Google stuff, you know, even though I have. Um, go to doctors. But if you don't like what your doctor's saying, keep going till you really get the answers. Don't just settle for, oh, you have anxiety. Well, that's one of the beautiful things about Dysautonomia International is that Mm -hmm. they actually um, help patients become their own advocate Right. uh, because we have to be our own advocate because there is not enough research. There's Mm -hmm. not enough funds for for doing this research Mm -hmm. to get answers and hopefully, you know, find some, you know, cures and ameliorating some of these symptoms. People are really suffering, suffering badly with POTS. Well, 70 million people. Well, I was shocked by those numbers. And, um, you know, uh, I think it was like one in 100 uh, teenagers between uh, with pots one and 100 that doesn't sound like but that's it's more than we want uh, we have to wrap uh, it goes so fast um, <laughs> I, I want to thank, well, thank you uh, for both us. of you Wendy Barukowitz and Lauren Stiles for being on the show to share this your story and I hope that this raises consciousness about pots um, I want to thank you and we are going to wrap um, I want to just uh, have one last uh, thing before I leave um, you're listening to Fearless, Fabulous You with Melanie Young. Before we leave, I do need to tell everybody, everybody, da-da, join me in Mexico in Costa Baja, February 25th to 29th for my first Fearless, Fabulous Retreat. And you're going to want to go because it's going to be cold wherever you are. And we're going to be eating and drinking really good wine and eating well. But you're going to learn how to change, make healthy changes to have a happier you. And if you want more information, go to www.myretreatsunlimited.com and take advantage of an early bird special because it's a great holiday gift. Again, Fearless Fabulous You Retreat, February 25th to 29th at Costa Baja Resort and Spa. I... 
want to tell everybody it is my job and my goal to help you live a happier life and a healthier life and learn to ask questions about your health and well-being so you know how to take charge. Wendy and Lauren are perfect examples of doing that. If they hadn't asked questions and persisted, they would not have found the answers. So with that in mind, I'm going to say until next week, have a fearless, fabulous week. We have an amazing guest on uh, next week, Dr. Susan Love. Oh my God, I got to prep for that one. And um, you know what? Stay healthy. Thank you.